We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Our scripture reading today is found again in the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, that it is, as it is known by some more commonly, the Song of Songs. Overall structure of the book, it appears that the uh, bride and groom are near to being married. That will be in chapter 5, but they are certainly appreciating one another very much in chapter 4. Chapter 4 says this, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. I guess that works in a modern sense pretty well, doesn't it? But what about this? Your hair is like a flock of goats. Hmm. Doesn't go over too well? All right. Well, you can understand the cultural uh, emphasis here. Uh, A flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. So again, you know, it's interesting, as with uh, English and our culture, with Hebrew and its culture, there were ways that lovers expressed themselves to one another in a sort of code language that maybe they knew, you know, the words that they share with each other. Uh, and innuendos and things like that. And that's what we're seeing here, the same kind of thing. Verse 3, your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers. Those are shields, small shields typically. All shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Now, this is not a literal sister. This is a way that in Hebrew they would express a close, permanent connection or affection uh, to one another. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse, How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Your lips, my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed 
is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. And now the Shulamite Awake, O north wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Song of Songs, fourth chapter. All right, let's turn our Bibles uh, then back to the book of Genesis, please, if you would do so and follow along as we carry on our series in Genesis 16. I I want to start, though, with a bit of review from chapter 15. Just a moment. I tried to bring two lessons to you last time, two related thoughts. Uh, And the first was regarding how uh, Abram, it says in verse number six, believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The Bible here is making clear, perhaps the most clear for the first time, that a right standing with God comes by faith in God. Uh, Abram didn't have all the content of faith that we can have because the revelation was much more sparse than what we have. He did not have to believe in a crucified, uh, buried, and resurrected Savior named Jesus of Nazareth like we do. That is the way we express faith in God today. He expressed faith in God as he knew him, as God had revealed But we went to Romans chapter 4 to remind ourselves that, as Paul said, this was not just written for his sake alone. This was written too for us at the end of Romans 4, who believe unto righteousness. Remember that? That this passage, which is something that occurred perhaps 4,000 years ago, expresses a timeless truth that is just as true today as it was then, that if we believe in the Lord then he will account it to us for righteousness. And in fact, to believe in Jesus is to believe in the one who sent him. Remember that? In the New Testament, it's very clear about that. If you believe me, then you believe the one who sent me. And similarly, if you believe their word, their being the apostles, if you believe their word, you're believing in me and thus believing in the one who sent me. The apostles' word is recorded for us in the New Testament. Okay, so you believe the word of the New Testament, you're believing the apostles, and you're believing in Christ, and you're believing in God the Father, and this belief is what God accounts or credits to us as righteousness. It's, it's odd to the human way of thinking, because we think to get righteousness, you have to do righteousness. But the reality is you can't do righteousness enough to get credited with, with the kind of righteousness that God gives us through Christ Jesus. So that's one truth, that idea of salvation, of of righteousness coming to us by faith. And then the second part of that was, how does God work that? How does he make that happen? And we saw in the remainder of Genesis 15 that he made a promise to Abram, and that promise had to do specifically with the land uh, that his people would receive in the future, but really it had to do with the whole Abrahamic covenant, including the whole package of promises 
that he made in Genesis 12 and again is making here and will throughout the book of Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the, to the patriarchs after them in each of the tribes. But the way that he promised this to Abram was what? Remember how he did that? He initiated a covenant ratification ceremony with Abram, except he put Abram to sleep. And that kind of one-sided covenant ratification ceremony meant what God was saying was, this promise that I'm making to you, which has to do with you having an heir and having descendants and having a land and that blessing and all that, I am enacting that on my own without any of your participation. We connected this to the New Testament gospel in which God, through Christ, enacted on his own the payment for our sin. Remember in Hebrews it tells us that Jesus, when he had by himself, purged our sins. There was no assistance by men or people. There, was no, there is no then after that participation by us to add to the merit that Christ has, has demonstrated, wrought, and earned on the cross of Calvary. Nothing like that. It is simply, again, by faith, as Abram found in Jesus Christ, who enacted that one-sided, if you will, covenant. Obviously, it has benefits to the other side, us, but there was no participation we had in generating that righteousness, that right standing, or anything. And I, it just struck me last week, and that's why I closed with tears, that we, we, we have to stop and realize what God did for us, what the historical reality is that he gave himself so that we could have eternal life. And he gave himself in a very violent fashion. Um, you know, some have criticized Christian theology by saying, well, uh, you know, God never approved human sacrifice. He never said anything about human sacrifice, except he did. Isaiah chapter 53, it says, you have made his soul, his soul, the servant's soul, an offering for sin. He's the one upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquities of us all. And it's clearly sacrificial language there. Uh, Isaiah 53 is among, among the, uh, the top references that we would go to to prove that, and uh, probably the best one. But he did talk about human sacrifice. And the way that it was implemented was, we might think, somewhat strange by using the Jews and the Romans and Pilate and the soldiers and the cross and all of that. But you know what? God had had figured all of that out in advance, and he laid it out so that Christ would suffer the appropriate kind, in his mind, in God's mind, the appropriate kind of suffering to pay the sin debt of the world when the blackness of darkness hung over the land. The wrath of God was being poured out upon his son so that it would not be poured out upon his people. For that I am very grateful. That was kind of the point of last week's message. I hope that may help to kind of bring it up again and remind you what we were talking about. We move on to chapter 16 now, and although we're coming into the season where we remember the birth of Christ, 
we're, we're looking in Genesis at kind of the run-up to that, to the line that leads to Jesus, and there is a little kind of fly in the ointment in chapter 16. We've heard that God has promised Abram he's going to have a seed, he's going to have a descendancy, he's going to have many offspring. In fact, in him all the families of the earth will be blessed, uh, and that is going to come as we learn, kind of we should perhaps have known before reading uh, Galatians or other New Testament books, but it did come indeed through the one seed of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, But again, as is often the case, people think they have better plans than God. And that's what we find in chapter 16 with the account of Hagar and Ishmael. Let me read it. It's just 16 verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, when she had, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, here he is in his mid-80s, He's marrying a second wife now at the insistence of his first wife, which is kind of strange, isn't it? So he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Now that's kind of written in a, in a passive voice, but it basically means she began to despise her mistress. Now mistress in this case means a woman in a household with authority. Okay, a mistress doesn't mean like it means usually today. A mistress means somebody who is intruding, a woman intruding into a marriage who shouldn't be in an adulterous relationship. Mistress also has the meaning of kind of master, master woman of the house, if you can understand that. So her mistress, that is Sarai, she began to despise. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Now, how does that work exactly? Not sure how she thinks that's the case, but uh, it sort of is upon him, but it sort of is upon her too. I gave my maid into your embrace. Yeah, that was the problem, Sarai. And when she saw she had conceived, which is what you wanted, Sarai, I became despised in her eyes. Didn't you think of that, Sarai? The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael. Does that language remind you of any other language? How could you miss? You will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Matthew's gospel tells us a very similar language that's used a number of times in the Bible. Why call him Ishmael? Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. 
Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Now notice that she, this is the angel of the Lord speaking, and she recognizes this is the Lord himself. This is the pre-incarnate appearance of God, of Christ. The Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. Okay, that's the name she gives to God. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So the account here, this is a historical account, by the way, precisely historical, not an allegory, not a parable. Uh, The narrative begins with Sarai perceiving the need to assist God in his plan to bring about a seed a descendant in their family. We learn from chapter 15, God says, from your own self, Abram, you're going to have a child in your own family. Starting a family was not going as planned, so Sarai suggested they have a child by a surrogate mother, so to speak, Hagar. Bad idea, of course. Sarai's in the wrong to suggest that, even though it was a common cultural practice. Culture is often wrong. Can I say that again, not be too offensive? Culture is often wrong. It needs to be changed, needs to be redeemed. And in this case, it was wrong. Abram caved into her plan when he should have stood up to her and said, No, I am not going to marry another wife. We're going to do this the way God has intended for it to be done. I have one wife, and that's how child bearing is supposed to happen. Just because his wife nagged him to sin was no reason for him to sin, in fact, but he did. He went ahead and took Hagar as a second wife and fathered Ishmael. The problem of polygamy is raised here, very frankly. God records it in his word to show the consequences of such things. And by contrast, the beauty of a well-ordered marriage between a man and a woman as long as they are alive until death parts them. Obviously, the Bible does not smile upon their perversion of the marriage relationship. Why do we know that? Well, we see the consequences that come after. So God is not uh, sugarcoating the situation He's laying it out just like it is. I mean, if somebody says to me, well, there's polygamy in the Bible, I say, well, let's go right back here and just just see about this polygamy and what it says about it and the rivalries and the jealousies that come up and the problems that arise and all of that. You think it's, it's putting a positive stamp of approval on it? Absolutely not. That's silly. And so, you know, you, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we're not supposed to do. You know why they're there? so that we know not to do them. <laughs> so, Scripture's very clear, doesn't smile on that. Uh, they have very, very bad consequences in their family structure. You know, two becoming one in the marriage relationship makes it impossible for polygamy to be morally upright or workable. Polyandry, the same thing. Of course, our society wants anything to go with anybody because love is love, they say, that tautological statement that means nothing. Uh, 
it's, it's kind of strange to think, how can two become one, and then you add one more to that, and it becomes what? Three again or something, or two again? It, it's just, it just doesn't, it shows a total lack of understanding of what real marriage is all about in God's design. So the sin that they had uh, done leads to consequences in verses 4 through 6. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, servant, Hagar, becomes, or maidservant, becomes uh, kind of, you know, gets on her high horse a little bit. You know, now I'm a, I'm a wife right next to my mistress, and so I'm just as good as her. And look, in fact, I'm better because I'm able to have a child. And so, you know, she's married to the head of house as well as she was, and she begins to despise her mistress. Now, she shouldn't have done that, obviously. That was kind of a dumb idea. So there's enough blame to go around to all the parties here. Sarai for suggesting it, Abram for capitulating to it and doing it, uh, Hagar for beginning to, you know, get an attitude about it. Sarai could not take it now that there was a child-bearing rival in the home who was able to have a child while she was not, but she didn't ever want to live by the adage, you made your bed, now lie in it. You know, this was your problem, so live with it. No, she didn't want to do that. Um, Should have thought of this beforehand, but then Sarai brought the Lord into it. Um, My, uh, she says um, in verse Five, my wrong be upon you. And then at the end of verse five, the Lord judge between you and me. I'm not sure exactly what the Lord has to do with this. I mean, he permitted it to be sure, but to, for whom is the blame to be placed? I mean, not on God. She didn't, or he didn't do anything. Sarai did, Abram did, Hagar did. I mean, Hagar could have put a stop to the whole thing, too. She said, look, I'm not going to become a rival wife to this, the, the, my mistress. Not at all. So they all had their participation in it. Uh, I don't see Sarai faring any better than Abram in this judgment, except he's the head of the household and had the final responsibility in the matter, of course. Abram couldn't take his wife's complaining, and so he puts Hagar under her hand to do with as she wishes. In other words, here's Abram kind of making another big mistake, Okay, I'm going to delegate my head of household responsibility with regard to this woman into your hand. Well, that wasn't going to work out too well. Wrong again. Sarai drives Hagar away from the home. She makes it so unpleasant for her that she causes her to strongly desire, in fact, fact desire to leave. And I just can't imagine. Now, we don't understand how this works or... Maybe how it works we understand, but not how it feels or how it, how it is in a major uh, household situation like this. What I mean is you have a head of house, a patriarch, his wife, children, which they didn't have yet, but servants and all of this, and then polygamy added into it and everything. Um, you know, so it's kind of like, well, obviously, you know, there shouldn't be two, two women in the home. But in fact, there were many men and many women in this household, in this encampment that they had. You know, they were living together in this place, a little village, if you will, micro-village perhaps. But how do you take a pregnant woman and drive her out into the wilderness? What kind of, what kind of deal is that? So 
the, the sin leads people to do such awful things to one another. It's just hard to understand how that can be. But that's because if you've been in Christ for any length of time, your mind has been continuously sanctifying by the Word of God, and you begin to have that those old you know, fleshly ways of thinking are washed away from you and you begin to find them very foreign. How, how people could do that and how could they be so cruel to one another? But here's where the passage becomes very comforting because even in all of this, we have the God who sees. And it's not speaking about the God who sees like, you know, oh, God's watching you, you know, you better be careful. Yes, of course, God knows everything you do, and you shouldn't be sinning because of that, and he's right with us. But this is a more comforting kind of seeing. God gives some direction to Hagar in verses 7 to 14, and in an encounter full of his grace and care, he appears to Hagar for the first time. The second time this happens is in chapter 21. And God asks her, where did you come from and where are you going? Well, uh, God didn't ask this for himself. I mean, he knew already, but more for herself. I mean, can you imagine meeting somebody, you don't know who it is, but it's the angel of the Lord, as you find out later, and he just kind of pops into your vision and starts talking to you? It's probably nice for him to say, hey, where are you headed? You know, where are you coming from? Just kind of start with a little small talk, uh, kind of, although it's not, God never does small talk per se in that way. Uh, Of course, she doesn't know where she's going, it seems. She doesn't say, in fact, where she's going. She just says, well, here's where I'm coming from. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. But, you know, she didn't say this, but basically I don't have any destination. I don't have one in mind. So the Lord tells her in verse number 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And then he gives some further instruction about what's going to happen. So this is instructive for us because God is saying, look, go back, you know, go back. Well, Lord, it's a harsh situation. Yes, I know it's a harsh situation, but you need to go back anyway. Go ahead and go back. Submit yourself under her hand. Maybe, you know, you have a similar situation. I'm not advocating anybody stay in a dangerous situation, but perhaps an employer or a parent is a bit overzealous in their micromanagement style or whatever, and you don't like it. You know, can you live with that, though, like Jesus submitted to people who didn't deserve his submission? Did they? No, he learned obedience by what he suffered, And so we do as well. Submission is one of those critical elements, critical character traits for us to learn, especially as young people. But all throughout our lives, we need to to learn that. God also then promised her that her son would have many descendants as well. You think, well, wow, that's kind of strange. How is that possible? I mean, this is a... This is kind of a side thing here. This isn't the real son. We know Isaac is coming in a few years from now. We've read on in Genesis at all and are familiar with it. So why this blessing? Well, because Ishmael, whose name we'll find out in just a moment, was also a son of Abram. And so he received blessing on account of that. Did you know that? He did not deserve it. She did not deserve it. But that is why it's called grace. 
Grace is undeserved. The blessings and good things we receive from God are sometimes because of other people. Ishmael received a blessing from God because of his dad. Because of the promise that God made to his dad, and that promise flowed through his dad and sanctified his father, Abram, and and gave some blessing to all of his offspring that way. Sometimes God directly blesses you. Sometimes he blesses you because you are receiving gifts of other people, other people who pray for you, the other people to whom you're related, the other people who help you. So I want you to remember that blessing does not always just come you know, directly from heaven to you. It mediates through various means. Some of them may be, you may be blessed because your parents were Christians. You may be blessed because God brought a Christian friend into your life to draw you toward himself. You may be blessed because God has designed for you to be born in the United States of America. You've got to recognize all these mediated blessings and, and, and stop thinking about yourself as just an individual, you know, me and God, and, and, and we're, uh, you know, happy together kind of thing and all that. No, God has, and, and if you're not a believer, recognize that some of those blessings that you get are because there are believers around you. We don't live in a savage society because it's been Christianized over the, the West has been Christianized over the centuries, kind of falling off of that now and becoming neo-pagan. But you, I think, understand what I mean, that there's been such a dramatic impact of the Christian church on the West that we, we've restrained sin indeed, and we've, we've increased the quality of life for humanity through all kinds of things and pursuits and the stewardship command that God has given to the human race to be uh, managers and have dominion over his creation. And all those things bring blessing to us in different ways. Man, there's a lot of good things out there that God has done. We can look on the news and see a lot of bad things, but there's a lot of good things that he has done for us as well and mediated through different things. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Children who have a Christian mom or dad are sanctified by the presence of that parent in the home. And that's a blessing for them to have. I reminded you of the wording in Matthew 123 where the Lord tells Mary that she's going to have a son and call his name Emmanuel, and that name is significant. Just like that here, the name Ishmael is significant If you uh, look at it in verse number 11, it says, You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. The uh, root S-H-M-A, Shema, means to hear. That's from the Hebrew verb to hear. And El, E-L, is God. El, Elohim. God has heard or heard of God. A related name is Samuel, Samuel, sound familiar, doesn't it? Ishmael, Samuel. So the component parts of the name mean exactly what God says in the next phrase, the Lord has heard. Not only has the Lord seen your affliction, Hagar, not only has he cared for you, the oppressed one, you've been kind of victimized. I mean, you've been kind of stupid too, but you've been a victim of this larger scheme 
you've been a servant girl in your home, a servant lady. And so he saw, but he also heard. He paid attention to Hagar's affliction and did something about it. God then informs Hagar about the character of her son. And uh, very frank here, he's going to be a wild man. He's a foe to everybody around him. I don't know what mom thinks about this, but she thinks, oh boy, he's going to be a handful. This kid is going to be a handful. Terrible twos could be more terrible than normal. Hagar expressed her experience with God by calling God by the name, the God who sees. And then the place name, Be'er Lahai Roy, where God sees from the verbal root to see in Hebrew. Hmm. God can often be characterized by how he responds or helps people in difficulties. Uh, God who sees, the God who provides. Remember Jehovah Jireh, the, gr- the God of all grace. How gracious that he saw Hagar in her hour of need and helped her in her time of deep need, and she needed guidance. I mean, think of a young woman. I don't know how young she was, pregnant, driven away from home. Where do I turn? I don't have anybody to protect me, help me, provide for me, guide me, give me advice, nothing. God took up the role and stood in place for her. Ishmael heard of God. He is born. Hagar obeys the Lord's command to return to the household of Abram. And Abram was 86 when the baby was born. He was, uh, that was 11 years after he left Ur of the Chaldees. And we, we will find out later that his son Isaac was born about 14 years later. But that'll be for uh, further, further time here, a later study. Let me go through some lessons from Ishmael for us this morning. We learn a lot of wrong things in this passage. In other, in other words, uh, unsugar-coated wrong things to guide us very clearly as to what we should and shouldn't be doing. First of all, trying to provide in the strength of the flesh outside of God's will will lead to problems. You stop and you think, am I trying to do this in the strength of my own flesh and wisdom and uh, intelligence and hard work and all of that, uh, or am I doing this in faith before God? Doing it in the flesh like Abram and Sarai and Hagar did will involve sin. If for no other reason, then you're not doing it in faith. And whatever is, of not, is not of faith is sin, the Bible tells us. Very clearly, that's Romans 14, 23. Lying for your work, or lying to cover up your own sin, or seeking pleasure outside of God's ordained means in marriage, all of that involves sin. So trying to provide, again, in the strength of the flesh, outside of God's will, that's sin, Okay. Second lesson, God graciously cares for the downtrodden and afflicted. Think of the Egyptian captivity when he came to Moses at the burning bush and he said, I have seen the affliction of my people. And I'm going to do something about that is what he was saying to Moses. Now, God doesn't always do so on our timeline. He let the Israelite people languish in slavery for the better part of four centuries. He let slaves in the United States of America languish in slavery for generation upon generation, and they wondered if there ever would be a Moses. 
that would come and rescue them from their slavery. He did it many times in the book of Judges. And the people of the nation of Israel had to wonder, will God rescue us from the awful scourge of the Holocaust and all the other things that have happened to us? You know, Haman, Mordecai, the story of Esther. God graciously cares for his downtrodden and oppressed people. Sometimes not in their time frame. Sometimes generations pass and some have to live through and die in the midst of such affliction. But God does provide ultimately rescue. Thirdly, God hears. Remember the name Ishmael. Ishmael. Shamael. God hears. Remember this truth before you blame this line of Abram's descent for all the problems in the Middle East or all the world's terrorism or stuff like that that people say out of line. It's far too easy to fall into an ethnocentric viewpoint. What I want you to remember when you hear the name Ishmael is that God hears. Even when we've goofed it up royally, we've gone away from God, we've done some fleshly-centered plan, we're going to do this, we're going to help God out because he can't do it himself, he hasn't figured out a way to do it, and yet still God cares for people who are in affliction after they've kind of gotten themselves into that affliction by what they have chosen to do. God hears. Another lesson, number four, sometimes God requires submission when it's difficult in work or school or home. The situation is not always happy, but sometimes necessary for us to get by. Submission. I'm sure you've had that if you've had any military service in your life, had to submit to crazy rules or different things that are... Uh, you, you had that, brother? Been there, brother? Been there, done that. Yes. So, but uh, to get by, submission. But it's more than just to get by. It's to learn a lesson that even Jesus learned in himself. You can make submission, however, more difficult. And this is number five. Make it more difficult by what you do. You know, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Like, uh, why would she do that? Like, wives are commanded to be submissive to their husbands. So why would you, wife, make it more difficult to do that by despising your husband, by being kind of, you know, catty with him or whatever you want to say? Be like Jesus, and husbands be like that to your wives. If Hagar had been humble, and kind, she would have fared a lot better, not been driven away in the first place from the home. Wisdom would have taught her that it's difficult enough for Sarai. I mean, put yourself in, in, in Hagar's position. She's been asked to basically be a surrogate because her mistress, who is somewhat older than her, cannot bear children. Do you have sympathy for that kind of situation that somebody has? Like, oh, she can't have children. That's terrible. No further insult should be added to that situation. It's bad enough as it is. And then uh, what are we on? Number six now. This is the last lesson in this little segment of my notes, and I have another kind of connection to a New Testament passage. But the lesson I've written here is go with what you know. 
Go with what you know to be true. Abraham had talked about an heir with God in chapter 15. And God told him that a directly natural-born son would be an heir, wouldn't be a servant in his household. Abram knew about the you know, divine law of marriage. He knew these things. And he knew he should have first sought God about his wife's plan to see if it's appropriate. On top of that, he should have trusted God to provide through his own wife. So when, when God speaks, run with that information, not with the other stuff that you conjure up in your own imagination. God had taught about the sanctity of marriage, and in this special case about Abraham having a natural son, so Abram should have stuck with God's plan, just like for you. Run with what you know. And if you don't know, you find out what you need to know. You open up this book, you ask somebody who's a trusted Christian advisor, what should I do about this situation? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? You know, pastor, you know more about this than I do. Don't be lazy by just, you know, calling me up and say, hey, what do I do? I've got an admission of guilt right in the second row right here. Uh, yeah, don't be lazy about that. But you know what? It's okay because God has given us iron to sharpen iron. He's given us assistance to help with our individual questions, with our marriages and with all of that. That God knew that we needed. Remember the mediated means of God's blessing? God mediates his, his, his knowledge through his word, but he does that through teachers of the word as well. And so... Go with what you know, find out what you need to know, and be informed in God's word so that you have the wisdom you need to make these kind of decisions. I mean, you know, if Abram had called me up on the phone and said, should I go through this plan? I would say, now, wait a minute, Abram. Let's calm down for a minute. Let's just think about this, okay? You're talking about, you know, polygamy, and this is going to happen, and this bad consequence, and all that. I don't think you should do that. In fact, don't do that. Wait on God. See what God has to provide for you. All right, finally. Paul uses Ishmael as an illustration in Galatians chapter 4. And we don't have time to go study the whole chapter here, but I'll just mention this. We have in Genesis an historical account. Okay, this is not an allegory, it's not a parable, uh, it's not a myth, it's not a story. Okay? It is a historical account, and it shows two different ways of trying to implement God's plan. Okay? It shows the way of the flesh and, by contrast, the way of God, which was in chapter 15 and then, as we'll see later on, in the book. Paul uses this as an illustration to make a head-to-head comparison between salvation by works and salvation by grace through faith. And he says, salvation by works is like Hagar and Ishmael. You have a child of the flesh, that is, your own strength, your own approach, your own wisdom. You rely on yourself. The child is born according to the flesh. It's a picture of bondage. This is not a legitimate heir. This is like, he says, the covenant at Sinai, and the idea that people have that they can be saved by the works of the law. 
that you can rescue your situation by keeping the law, Ten Commandments or some other body of law. He says, on the other side, we have Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is a child of promise. He's a child of faith. He pictures reliance upon God. He's born according to the Spirit. He's a picture of freedom, not the law. Remember, Paul often taught that under law, you're in bondage because the law just points out sin. It cannot free you from sin. The child of promise is a legitimate heir. Isaac was a legitimate heir. Uh, Eliezer of Damascus was not a legitimate heir. And Ishmael was not the heir that God designed. The Abraham and Isaac situation symbolized the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing of God, and salvation by grace through faith. Now, again, the Genesis passage doesn't say what I just said. It doesn't say that here. This is just history. But Paul uses that history to make an illustration of parallels to theological realities that he is teaching. Okay? If you attempt, what he's saying is, don't be entangled with a way of works and law when true salvation actually comes through the work of Christ. If you attempt to be made right with God by your own keeping of any law or any moral code, you will be cast out because that is insufficient. That's the picture. This is not saying that Ishmael nor any of his descendants could ever be saved. It's not saying that at all. It's using them as an illustration. Look, this isn't Ishmael's fault. He's not an illegitimate child. He had illegitimate parents. He had parents that were in the wrong, but that doesn't do anything to him. He, as well as all of his descendants, can be saved if they come to faith in God through Christ. Now, when I said that, you know, this is a picture of being in the flesh and a child of the flesh and all that. We say something is of the flesh in Christian theology. What we mean is that it's characterized by sin and human effort as opposed to reliance upon God. Now, this doesn't mean that you know we Christians just sit on the sidelines and do nothing. We live and work and think and plan and strategize and, and all of that, but we do so in an environment saturated with God's trust, with trust in God, with reliance upon God. We do not ultimately rely upon our flesh. Abram and Sarai did do that with Hagar, rely on their own strength, their own sinful machinations, even though they had an explicit promise of God. So the historical account of Hagar and Ishmael, Ishmael sorry, being cast out parallels what happens to those of us who would try by human means the flesh to achieve spiritual salvation. Nope, we're going to be cast out. We will not be heirs if we try that approach. But this is not because of meanness on the part of God. You might say, well, Hagar was cast out because Abram and Sarai were being mean to her. Yeah, that's true. I think so. But this is where the analogy breaks down. God is not mean by casting out people who are not proper heirs. The motivation in God is not evil. Rather, it's holiness. God is just to punish sin and to keep it away from his eternal people so that they do not have to suffer it forever 
and ever. Can you imagine, just by contrast, you have to live in the presence of sin for all eternity? Not a very pleasant idea, is it? Ultimately, holiness does demand an answer to the problem of evil. Doesn't demand an immediate answer. That's the problem today. People say, well, why? if God's so good and, and so powerful, why is there evil? Well, in part because there won't be. And God has dealt with it in Christ. But there's a reason for it existing. God knows and understands that reason. And part of that is that he's going to show his righteousness in, in contrast to it. Holiness does demand an answer to the problem of evil, and that answer is to separate the sinful and the holy forever and ever. Only those who wish to be apart from God will have that sin-filled existence as their portion. That's over in condemnation. But those who wish to be apart with God... And those of of us who wish to be with God will have a holiness-filled existence as our portion. And God makes that eternal separation because you can't have this holy existence with the presence of sin always intruding in. It's got to be separated. It's got to be punished. God is just to punish sin and to keep it away from his eternal people. And he has made provision for that. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share the word today. You have been gracious to us and helping us to understand what we've read here and and how this situation was displeasing to you, but even then how you showed care for the oppressed Hagar. And that gives us hope as well that when we have challenges that you see and will come to our aid. In Jesus' name, amen.